Hello and welcome to Wine Blast Live. This is the short version of the pod where we dare to tackle big subjects. And it doesn't come much bigger, does it, to the 1982 claret? It's a biggie. It's massive. Uh, <laughs> massive. Ma- massive. Huge. It's massive. Uh, so we better start at the beginning Okay. Uh, with me hosting an event um, put on by a wine collector who just happened to have bought a shed load of 1982 Bordeaux back in the day. As you do. Um, <laughs> as you do. As you do. Uh, we didn't. Uh, and he wanted to, to, to sort of enjoy these wines with a selection of his very best friend so he invited me along as, as the token wine geek if you like and i was i was very grateful indeed and come on how was it okay it was mind-blowing <laughs> it was uh staggering it's one of those experiences where uh you want to pinch yourself but you don't want to wake up yeah, that kind I, of thing you I, know what I, mean? I, I can imagine it's i can imagine I, I think let's go back a bit so obviously we do want to hear about the night and we want to hear about the wines but let's start at the beginning so bordeaux okay. 1982 famous region famous vintage yeah give us some background okay so we all know bordeaux don't we uh, producer of some of the finest and most expensive wines on the planet um, based largely around cabernet sauvignon and, and merlot great varieties but we tend to have quite short memories when it comes to Bordeaux. Uh, And it's not often recognised how precarious life in Bordeaux wine country was until relatively recently. I mean, when are we talking? Well, uh, for a lot of the 20th century, really, uh, even some of the top Bordeaux properties were really struggling to to make ends meet. You know, the wines weren't crazy expensive, properties were big, hard to maintain, taxes were high. Uh, There were obviously various world wars Mm. in the 20th century and economic crises. Let's not forget prohibition in the US as well, which had a massive effect. You know, to put things into perspective, and I love this little factoid, uh, in the mid-20th century, right, British railways the rail company in in the UK, used to serve half bottles of Chateau Palmer as their house wine in their restaurant class. No, no. (laughs) How cool is that? I love it. But it gives you a sense of perspective of where Bordeaux was in the pecking. And if ever there was an argument for privatisation, reprivatisation. Reprivatisation. That campaign starts here now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what about about the vintages then, you know, before 1982? Okay, yeah, not great. I mean, no? um, there'd been a really? huge frost. No, not really. I mean, I, mean, I know there, there are some great. Not, not really. You know, um, no. 50s, 60s, the mid-60s and 70s were pretty much, yeah, nothing home, nothing to write home about. And there were quite a few of them in a row. So, But then, know, obviously, came along then 1982. Exactly. The so-called, you know, vintage of the century. Mm. I should say in a French yeah. accent, so okay. like the vintage of the century. I think that's what the Bordelais say about every vintage these <laughs> days, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, for a salesman, every new year somehow magically finds a way to be better than the last one. Um, mm. But in the context of vintage of the century, though, you can argue the case for the likes of 1900, 1928, 1945, 49, 61. 61. Yeah. Um, but, you know, although the Bordelais are salespeople par excellence, uh, we should also recognise that 1982 was pretty special. Uh, it was a very warm summer and a long, dry autumn. It wasn't perfect, but it did give a very large crop of pretty healthy grapes. Um, so right from the off, producers were really excited. But I'm, 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 I seem to think I might probably got this wrong, but not everybody agreed, did they? You're absolutely right. You know, some people did, but there were a lot of naysayers as well. And there's a bit of a story here. You know, the British wine trade usually gets it in the neck, <laughs> gets the brunt of the criticism, if you like, for for, for criticising the vintage. But that's not entirely true. Uh, but like I say, makes for a good story. You know, so on the one hand, those who did criticise it said it was too high yielding, uh, the wine styles were too ripe, and it, the wines would never age. Um, you know, it was 
was a vintage for early drinking was the received mm. wisdom from those people and, and not much else. Mm. You know, some people were really quite sniffy about it and described it as, and I quote, Californian in style. That's a bit unfair, Make isn't of it? that what you will. But, but just on that note, there was, of course, one notable champion of the vintage, wasn't there? Indeed there was. And this was the other hand. This was the American wine writer, Robert Parker, uh, who championed the 1982s from the rooftops. Um, you know, he, he staked his reputation on it being an amazing, great vintage. Uh, and he was subsequently vindicated um, and went on, as we know, to become one of the most uh, celebrated and influential wine critics ever. Um, so yes, 1982 made ripe wine styles. Yes, it was a large crop, but it did make balanced and intense wines. So important. At all levels, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So um, And the wines really have aged superbly well. So, you know, in some cases, they are undoubtedly contenders for vintage of the century. In some cases. So come on. <laughs> Were the cases the ones that you tasted? Well, Tell us about the wines. Well, there we go. Okay, so we tasted six wines. Uh, let me see, right. I've got it written here, so I don't remember. Don't forget. Uh, Mouton Rothschild, Pichon Lalande, uh, Levelas Casse, Lerville Poifre, Gruella Rose, and Ducru Bocayou. Uh, all had come from this one private cellar all and this is important were in amazing condition so this was a cellar they'd been cellared at the at uh, the what, owner's house exactly yeah uh, in, in a cellar. not in bond they were absolutely yeah. they've been they've been controlled the whole way through and you know you could see that from the bottles uh as soon as we got there the level the fill levels the wine level was well into the neck of the bottle which is quite rare for a sort of yeah. old vintage uh labels looked pristine the corks when they came out were all intact and not yeah. breached in any way the wine hadn't yeah. come over the top so you know the conditions here were you saw straight away so they've been sort of not touched um but and when you tasted them i mean it must have been kind of a a heart in mouth moment wasn't it how you know how was the the pressure you know were they gonna how good were they gonna be were they gonna be awful you know i mean really (laughs) it was it was intense it was intense um you know, it's the 40th anniversary of the 1982 vintage. I mean, you were there to talk about them, weren't you? So, you I know, was there you know, to talk about them. It would be hard well, to talk about them. First of all, to check they were okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, Can not you that imagine? They necessarily needed me just for that, but that yeah. was part of the yeah. thing. And, you know... After 40 years, anything, as we both know, can, can happen to a wine. Uh, or be, anything. <laughs> well, absolutely. Well, yes. Let's not talk about people. <laughs> people age superbly well if they drink enough wine. Uh, they, I mean, you know, they could have been caught, they could have been oxidised, yeah. or they could have frankly just died a death. Uh, and, you know, as someone, as all wine inevitably does at some stage, just falls apart, becomes ashen and sort of dead tasting. Mm. Um, you know, and it's I'd tired. read some very prominent critics writing about the, the 1982s saying even the top 1982s were starting to tire and to taste a bit tired and abs- actually oh, some of the specific wines we were going to be tasting I'd read these reviews about. Really? so I was I had my concerns you know so when we tasted them when I tasted them with with the collector and the sommelier just before with all of the guests some quite grand guests waiting to come in to this amazing private dining room you know it it, it it was a high pressure moment. Am oh, I talking this you, up enough? You live the life, don't you? Goodness. <laughs> uh, so tell us. And. Okay. And. I'm assuming it's a good ending, but so, you know, who it knows? Is, it is. You know, a uh, few things make me speechless. That's true. As you well know. Um, <laughs> you like to chat. But this was, this was, this was one of those moments. You know, I struggled, genuinely struggled for words. It was, you know, I've tasted a few 1982 clarets, um, but these were something else. Um, mm. You know, it, it says something, I think, about the, the importance of good storage. Yeah, well, I mean, for, the, for, for great wines. I guess people say there are no great wines, just great bottles. Yeah, 
Exactly. Really. And this totally you know, if you, that, I think. you could have a great wine, but if you store it incorrectly and, you know, you're going to... It doesn't matter. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so so do realized, terrible things to you it. Know, these wines were so vibrant and expressive and, 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 and exciting. So sort of young looking in the glass as well. Um, you know, if I've been tasting these blind... Honestly, I would never have put them at 40 years old and never have put them in 1982. They, really? they were so, so vibrant. Really? But I mean, go on. What, what were the, the stars of these six wines? Okay, okay. So Mouton Rothschild was breathtaking. Um, you know, unquestionably the star of the show. Uh, you know, as maybe it should be because it was the only first growth. There. Yeah, the rest it really of the wines should. Were, were second growths. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it was interesting because Mouton is renowned as being the most sort of flamboyant and exotic and decadent and expressive of the first growths. It sort of tends to be full on. But this one was actually quite restrained, mm. aromatically, interestingly. It wasn't what I was expecting. But it was when you tasted it, that was the that was the moment. It was, you know, the palate was so sort of gorgeously complex and, and, and fine with enormous depth and power, but with real sort of grace and, and and finesse it was silky but grippy it was everything you want great bordeaux to, to, to be it, it was it was just it was magic it there was definitely that was definitely the wine i tasted on the way on the way home well you, you nicked the bottle did you no <laughs> <laughs> no i should have yeah no, i wasn't thinking fast <laughs> but, enough was but, you I? know just being more serious it does sound like it was still tasting quite young and and you think it yeah. could still age and develop oh, totally and this was the thing this is what wow. took my breath away you know yeah so you know i remember tasting the, the the 1961 mouton back in 2012 and you know okay that was just, just dropping that in there. sorry just just dropping that hmm. you know but that was 50 years old then but it definitely I remember it tasting pretty mature, not in a mm. bad way, but but mature. You know, this one was still tasting so young. You know, it, it'd been stored well and it was tasting young and vibrant. It had decades left in it, you know, so, so much for a short-lived vintage. And and I mean, well, you say that, but was that true of the other wines as, as well or was it just yeah. Mouton? Okay, so um, it was actually. Uh, um, you know, before we started, I, my main concern, I was worried about two wines in particular I thought might be past their peak, the Level Poifre and the Pichon Lalande or Pichon Comtesse. Um, they were they, the, some of the less expensive wines. Well, yeah, we're probably well no, about Pichon Comtesse is one of the more expensive, okay, 100, okay. 100 Parker points. So, but Poifre, definitely the, the less yeah. expensive. But they're, they're two, it's the styles that set those two wines apart. They tend to be the sort of lighter styles or certainly tended to be then. You know, they tend to more major more on elegance and sort of grace and perfume than sheer power. Um, and that was why I was worried that they might not have stayed the course, but mm. but they were they were glorious. Maybe partly because they, they defied your expectations. Yeah, yeah, perhaps, perhaps. And but, we're different. But, well, I don't know. Also, you know, in the lineup, reconsidering the whole thing at the end, they they were two standout wines, you mm. know. So I'm not a huge fan of, of Léa Poiffre, you know. Uh, it used to be a bit rustic and a bit sort of uh, limited in scope. Simple, really. It was it was underperforming in the early 1980s. Uh, these days, I tend to find it a bit ripe and glossy and a bit voluptuous, but that's another matter. One extreme to another. Yeah, but this 1982 had such a beautiful sort of perfume. But more important than that, it was seriously sort of structured. It had power. Um, really good flesh as well, very sort of vibrant and vigorous. And, and the Pichon Lalande? Yeah, so the Contest, you know, Similar? as I say, another wine um, that I was worried about. And also, I, I've never really warmed to that one mm. either, being really honest. It's often just a bit too sort of light and weedy for me. It's a Poyac, but I like my Poyacs to be strong and sturdy and, you know, shake me around a bit. Um, <laughs> okay. Now, but Pichon Contest, just hold that thought for a second. Um, I'm thinking about it, a Poyac it taking you around. tends to have a, a high proportion of Merlot in the blend. So that's why it, it can be a bit lighter. Also, I didn't know this before, and I found out when I was doing the research for this, that, that Pichon Contest is, has quite a, a fair amount of vines planted in Saint-Julien. 
mm. the Appalachian next door, but yeah. it has a special derogation to call them Poyak, which I didn't know. Gosh. Anyway, both of those things, high proportion of Merlot, a bit of Sagittarius, makes sort of content to make I mean, wine a bit lighter I, I, in style. Aren't they taking out the Merlot, though, and, and yeah, sort of replanting you, to more Cabernet? You're absolutely right. right. They're replanting to... to so things... To, in the future, will 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 change anyway. There totally, but obviously we're talking about a wine yeah. the, the forty years ago now, yeah. so, so that's not not applicable. But they are doing that, you know. Maybe they've heard my comments. <laughs> but this nineteen eighty two contest um, just sailed mm. out of the glass with mm. just really just this perfume that was magical. It was strawberries and graphite and summer flowers. It was totally captivating. You know, the palette, yes, had lightness and lift, but it also had a sort of rugged tannin and juicy acidity that was just unbelievable. Um, so both lifted and grounded took, took my breath away. So definitely not Stunning. past it. Absolutely Let's not. be honest. Absolutely Certainly not. by the sound Quite of things. the opposite, you know. Yeah. Um, so, so Jane Anson, who we've had on the pod, Bordeaux specialist, wonderful wine critic, has called the Pichon Contest uh, 82 a knockout wine rightly considered one of the legends of the 20th century. Uh, Robert Parker himself called it one of the monumental wines of the last century. Um, and, you know, with that sort of billing, it's hard to come at it and be impressed, but I was. It, it was immense, you know, against all my expectations. The Pichon uh, contest was my second favourite wine of the evening after the Mouton. Really? It was. <sighs> what about the Lever Las Cas? Because that's mm. obviously a, mm. another famous Parker 100 pointer, isn't it? Yeah. Well, there were four of those, I think, in this lineup. Four. 400 four points, but w- whatever that means. Um, whatever but, it means. But the, the Las Cas was, was actually the one wine in the lineup that really didn't shine. Um, um, there's going to be one, hasn't there? I suppose, I suppose so. and in the and context, exactly. You know. you know, you can call it a disappointment, but really, I think it says more about how impressive the other wines were. Um, it was very good. You know, it was powerful. It was dense. It was what you expected it to be. It was brooding style with firm tannins, tons of cassis fruit. Um, but you know, Les Cas, I think, can be a bit of a sort of bodybuilder wine. It's sort of it's impressive. It's ambitious. It's flashy. It, it's you know, vineyards are just over the fence from Latour, uh, even though it's in Saint Julien. It's still on deep gravels near the near the river. And this wine, it ticked all the boxes, and it was impressive. But it was just I don't know, hard to warm to, not um, captivating. No, that's one way of saying it. it just lacked sort of charm. Mm. Really? Mm. Um, you know, if you're being generous, you'd say it still needed time. Um, and, and to be fair, it didn't really open up over sort of three, four hours in the glass. Mm. I mean, you so, know, I'm thinking of that brilliant line of, of Hugh Johnson's, you know, great wine should be a question mark, not an exclamation mark. And that sounds a bit like an exclamation mark. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. I hear you. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, anyway, then, what about the other ones? The the Du Cru and the Gruer de la Rose. I yeah, can't the say Gruer it. Kind of glu- glu- <laughs> it's a hard one to pronounce. <laughs> Gruer de la Rose. Mm, I'll leave um, that one to you. It, lots of people love the Gruer. Um, it's a monster of a wine. Beautiful scent. Total classic. Real sort of power and density as well. Still very young. Uh, seriously good. But, you know, I don't know, just a bit too correct and proper for me. It didn't really light my fire, I think. No flair. Fair as way of saying it. Possibly the best value wine of the evening, though. Um, but, I, you know, I preferred the Du Cru. It was, it was intense and complex, but it just had a sort of slightly funky, meaty, tobacco-y edge. Hard to define, really, but which was just seriously Moorish. So that mm. one, the Du Cru, was my third favourite of the evening. Okay. I mean, I'm, I'm fine about your favourites, but, you know, you mentioned value there. Mm. I'm sure we're all thinking... Um, Everything's relative, obviously, but um, but I'm. I think you probably mean good value in the context. What prices are we talking about? If we wanted to buy those wines right now, 
What would it cost us? You can take the girl out of Yorkshire, but uh, anyway, yeah. No, I want want to know. No, no, it's it's, it's actually how much money am I going to have to spend? Yes, to be captivated. Uh, I, you know, I wasn't keen to mention prices on the night because I think it, it sort of can spoil the enjoyment <laughs> a bit. But I did do You're the research. You're probably with people who don't care. Well, I don't know. I, everyone cares. Yeah, and actually, it's very, very relevant context. But sometimes, sometimes you just want to enjoy the magic. And it's you're very privileged. To the be wines are there. Nobody's got to buy them. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So. You know, um, so research, this is not definitive. It's a rough indicative pricing based on some pretty amateur research. But, He's never uh, been good at maths either, <laughs> just to warn you. Uh, Mouton Rothschild is, is £1,750 a bottle. Uh, Pichon Contest was £1,200 a bottle. Ducru is 650 uh, Cas 640 Gruel Rose 630 and Poifere 500 um, And the, like I say, these are all approximate. Uh, and of course, they were... That's not at all the prices like when they were bought. So they were much, much cheaper. So so we know the price. What about the best value in that lineup? The mm. taste, value. Mm. Interesting. Combination. Uh, I, I'd say probably the Poifere. I know it's the cheapest, but if it's been well stored, mm. it's it's a gorgeous wine and it, it knocks your socks off. Mm. Uh, but then, yes, okay, the, the Gruella Rose... Uh, but also the Ducru. I think the Ducru is... is uh, you're you not know, really... You're not really... I'd go for the Ducru. Fast <laughs> going value, context. And something Ducru. I want to drink, yeah. Yeah. Uh, interesting, related to this, we have had a great question from Kirsten in California about which wines we'd be prepared to spend silly money on. So so we may be picking up this theme a little little later uh, on, on another pod. Um, but in the meantime, I, you know, any last thoughts? Okay, yeah. So I was I was asked quite a bit on the evening about recent vintages of Bordeaux, you know, to compare to the legendary 1982, which is a good question. Um, and to my mind, the two recent vintages I'd bet on are the 2005 and the 2016, um, possibly with the addition of 2010 mm. for, for some wines. 2009? No? Yeah. <laughs> uh, it was a great Just growing asking. year, wasn't it? And a very good question. Um to my mind, lots of producers went too far and they made wines that were too ripe, too alcoholic, and they won't age well. Mm, careful, I think you could end up with another 1982, eating your words, maybe. <laughs> I, I could eat my hat, I'll do that, I'll do that live <laughs> on the pod, no problem. Uh, yeah, it could be. But or just I, drink all the 2009. <laughs> yeah, no, I'll, I'll, I'll have forced, the 2010s, thank forced. you, all the five. But yeah, no, I mean, it, it could, but I think 2009 belongs to a different era. So it's a modern era, you know, um, when... Styles have become naturally much more rich, alcoholic, and lower in acidity. So there's ripe, hmm. and then there's overripe. Um, 1982 was ripe in a historic winemaking context. 2009 was ripe in, in a modern winemaking context, and I think they're very different things. Yeah, I mean, freshness and drinkability are so important in Bordeaux, aren't they? Totally. They really are. Well, totally. they're important everywhere, but particularly Bordeaux. But sometimes we lose sight of this. Drinkability, yeah. it sounds yeah, easy yeah. to say. Wine should be drinkable. Its first duty is to be refreshing. And I think some of the modern wines are not refreshing. They're showpieces. Mm. Mm. So, you know, when Bordeaux is great, it's about richness, but also balance you know that special combination of power but with delicacy and elegance so you know it's a sweet spot if you like between four quadrants uh you know aromatics lovely fresh scents refreshing acidity firm tannin and ripe fruit um you know if you get all of those four together like you did in 1982 it's magical so there, let's end on a magical note. Um, if you've tried a, a particular, particularly special vintage or or wine, and you'd, you you just 
can't wait to tell us about it, please do. And um, you can do that via YouTube comments or social media or the magic of SpeakPipe on our website, susieandpeter.com. But thank you for joining us and we look forward to seeing you next time. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>